So today we have Jenna Overbaugh on the podcast to talk about anxiety, OCD, and all things related. Um, she has a podcast and she has a large following on social media. And without further ado, Jenna, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us about how you found your niche in anxiety and OCD and why you started a podcast and just give us your general background? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Uh, so yeah, I started... I've always been an, an anxious kid. That's like where my mind goes. Anytime I, I have to kind of start my story. I remember just being very anxious as a kid, um, waking up with stomach aches before school, dreading just social interactions, um, being very perfectionistic about my homework, needing my mom to check everything for me. Um, but I was also one of those kids I knew from a very early age, I did not like feeling anxious. I almost got very competitive with it. Um, so I knew, you know, when I would get nervous before school, who am I going to sit with at this new school? Who am I going to sit with at lunch? I would go and I would pick the most intimidating person to sit with, <laughs> like oh, the yeah. football team or like the pretty girls. Like I would find them and I would intentionally make myself anxious because I knew that just doing it and getting it over with, like ripping off the Band-Aid was better than sitting in my own suffering and like berating myself about it. So, um, I mean, I remember those experiences even as like as, as early as in kindergarten, playing heads up, seven up, right? Like, oh my gosh, what if they pick me? Okay, I'm just gonna raise my hand anyway. Um, so that was just always my personality. And, and when I went to college, I started to learn about psychology, I always wanted to be a therapist, but I didn't want to be like sitting in, you know, next to someone with a box of tissues and just like talking about things. I wanted to be more active and more in it and more structured than that. Um, so I didn't really have a home yet until I learned about exposure and response prevention or ERP. And it's this treatment that's really evidence-based. It's kind of what we call the gold standard, which means it's just backed by tons of research. And it's actually the go-to treatment for obsessive compulsive disorder, for anxiety, for trauma, for a whole lot of stuff, really. Um, and I was like, wow, that's exactly what I've been doing this whole time. Like I've been doing these exposures by sitting with the, the cool kids at lunch, even though I was like dorky, had braces and every mouth utensil possible. And I was super scared. <laughs> um, I, I like was doing that. And that just felt like it's in my bones. Like this is what I need to do. I need to like encourage people to overcome their fears. Um, and so that just became the thing. And I, from that moment in that Psych 101 course, my freshman year, every paper, every project, every um, assignment, it was like somehow about obsessive compulsive disorder. It was somehow about fear or worry or doubt or uncertainty. Like if I could spin it about one of those topics, it, it was about one of those topics. Um, so really since like, the beginning of college research as much as possible internships um, with people who have OCD and anxiety and related conditions. Um, I went to grad school, uh, further specialized in it. I worked for the past eight or so years um, in a residential facility, one of the kind of world renowned residential facilities for OCD and anxiety recovery. So that's like the most debilitating cases of OCD and anxiety uh, that you could possibly imagine. Um, and then, yeah, now I, uh, decided with the pandemic, you know, therapy, therapy was kind of going modern, right? Like therapy was going online, whether we liked it or not. And that's where people were, we had to reach people that way. Um, 
So it really all happened by accident that I landed on Instagram, that I decided to do a podcast. I did it just for fun, but people ended up really loving it. And I really ended up loving it. Um, so now I am actually, I do that also for fun, but I'm also the clinical marketing director at NoCD, which is a teletherapy platform. Um, we, we provide teletherapy services for people who have OCD. So um, that's a really cool way of me like having fun with what I do, but I'm still able to do the therapy side of it. And it's just, it's like a dream come true. Yeah, no, that's awesome that you've always been interested in that. And I feel like that's a lot of the times the case for therapists, like they go into something that maybe they have similar experience to or something that they, um, we're like, okay, I think, you know, this could be something that works for me. And it sounds like you knew all along, which is really cool. And now you've been able to, you know, make it a business and also have a podcast and have fun with it. So that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And um, I think to your point, a lot of times people like, you know, they're anxious. So they become anxiety therapists. Like they struggled with substance use. So they become a substance use counselor. I've always been a little bit anxious, never really like needed therapy for it or went to go. I just challenged myself um, and never struggled with obsessive compulsive disorder. But I think what's unique about my story and what I usually helps other people is I really struggled when I had my son. He's now four. So, um, you know, back in 2018, I already had 10 years of OCD experience professionally under my belt. Like I had been in books. I had spoken at national conferences about it. Um, I knew a lot about OCD and I was very ignorant almost um, about like, oh, well, I know that could happen to me when I have my baby. That's not going to happen to me. I would never ask my husband to do this thing for me. I would never check my, you know, my son's bottles to make sure they weren't contaminated, but it rocked my world rocked my world. I struggled with harm intrusive thoughts. I've struggled with sexual intrusive thoughts. Um, and yeah, that was just an interesting experience, you know, cause I, I feel like, you know, so many people have OCD and then they become a therapist. I feel like I was a therapist and then I got OCD after. Right. So, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a really unique experience, but it goes to show no one's immune to it. You can know all the things and when it rocks you, it, it has the ability ability and the capability of just completely rocking your world. Mm -hmm. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah, I hadn't known that that was your story that you developed it later on after having your son. And I know you talk about a lot of postpartum. So it makes sense, um, you know, sharing your story and helping other women navigate um, postpartum anxiety, depression, OCD, thoughts, whatever it is that comes up after they get birth. Right. And that's, I mean, it was never even on my radar. I, I thought for sure going into motherhood, you know, even throughout pregnancy, imagined myself having like four kids. Nope. I am after my experience, I, I am four and a half years later and I am very, very confident that I will not go back there. I will not go back there. I don't need to be a hero. So, so yeah, I started um, a local mom group. There was nothing like this in my area. I live in a small um, town kind of in between two larger cities, but there were breastfeeding classes. I didn't need help with that. I needed to like get out of my house. I needed like to be around people because I felt like a caged animal during maternity leave. Everyone was like, oh yeah, maternity leave is so boring. Like you'll be itching to come back to work. And I was like, I'm not bored. I'm so anxious. I can't sleep. Like I'm, 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 I'm itching to get out of my body. <laughs> like I'm itching to get out of my mind. I feel like I'm going crazy. And I just wanted to be out of my house. Um, 
the nature of my intrusive thoughts and my anxiety, it like all revolved around being alone in my house. Like, oh my gosh, like what if I'm alone during the day, my husband's not here and I do something to hurt my kid. Like, what if I do something and hurt him? And I like, what if his arm breaks either on accident or on purpose? Like I do that on purpose. Even though I don't want to, that's just the nature of OCD. Sometimes you have these scary thoughts you don't want to have. Um, but you're like, why did I have that thought? Does that mean that I actually want to do it? Oh my gosh. Um, and so I hated to be in my house. I always said that my house was like the Amityville horror. Like when I was in my house, I was a different person. Like I was just like possessed by this like dark energy, this dark cloud. And as soon as I got out of the house, I was fine, but that never existed. We didn't have mom groups or anything. So I actually started one, um, started what I needed. And it's now one of the largest um, mom support groups in um, the Midwest um, in Wisconsin. So it has like 5,000 moms now. Um, so yeah, that just became like something really near and dear to me. Cause I remember thinking if I'm struggling so much and I have 10 years of this like education and context, how I don't understand how moms survive and and sometimes they don't, which you know, um, and I can 100% see how and why that happens. Yes. Absolutely. Shout out to all the moms because I don't know, I'm not a mom and I don't know how you guys do it because it looks really, really difficult. And you mentioned scary thoughts and I feel like OCD in general is very misunderstood. I feel like a lot of people don't understand what OCD is. They maybe confuse it with anxiety or they think it is just those um, more like the clean, dirty types of OCD. And so I was wondering- Like the type A type of personalities, like, oh, your house has to be super clean and organized. Honestly, I was talking to Emily earlier today and I was like, ignorantly, I used to think that's what OCD was up until maybe a couple of years ago when I started dealing with intrusive thoughts and talking to my therapist and being like, what is going on but i never considered it you know ocd because in the mainstream that's not what it's described as and how many other people have that experience right like they they suffer in silence they they don't know that this is actually a very common disorder mm-hmm. this is a mental health disorder and it's actually the most treatable like that's it's it's more what we do which is exposure and response prevention is more effective for ocd and anxiety than any other treatment for any other condition so what a shame right like what a shame mm-hmm. that so many people especially moms are struggling with this and they don't have the context for it because of how widely misunderstood it is and that's i mean i think we're getting a little bit better at it but you're right like there's this mis construed media representation and that's what people talk feel comfortable talking about though right like people feel more comfortable talking about like fear of germs or the the need to have everything tidy or being perfectionistic about things people don't want to talk about how like they had an intrusive thought that they might have accidentally like hit through their baby out the window but they don't remember doing that because they're so sleep deprived like that sounds crazy but it it, that's what happened that's what happens. Yeah, it's way more intense than, oh, I'm OCD. I remember like the a clip from the Kardashians. Khloe Kardashian misuses the term OCD all the time because she likes to keep her house perfect. Like she talks about how she needs to have her cookies in perfect condition because she's OCD. And it's like, that's why it's so misunderstood, right? Because mm-hmm. people might not know that they actually have OCD because they're hearing people like, oh, well, I don't care about those kind of things. So I must not have. And it's like, you're right. How many people suffer in silence because it's so 
misunderstood because you're right. It's really scary to have to talk about those really type those types of thoughts that you're like, oh my gosh, what does that mean about me? Mm-hmm. About these thoughts about hurting somebody or about you know doing something that I would never actually do. Yeah, exactly. And we've done research to show, in fact, that everybody, regardless of your demographics, regardless of your character traits, regardless of where you're at in the world or your mental health status, it is not just people who have OCD who have these intrusive thoughts. People everywhere have these intrusive thoughts. Intrusive thoughts are just things that are kind of like out of your character. Like, where the heck did that come from? Like, I was talking to someone the other day on a podcast and he was like, the most unflappable person, like admitted that he didn't have any anxiety about things, but he was like, yeah, I was in Walgreens the other day and I had this thought, like, what if I just tickled the guy in front of me? Like, that's an intrusive thought, right? Like it's this weird spam thought that comes in out of nowhere that has no explanation. It's intrusive. I mean, like by all definition, it just comes in out of nowhere unannounced. Like you didn't bring it on. It just happened. But the difference is, People who have OCD and who are vulnerable to those thoughts being a little bit stickier, they accept, they tend to misinterpret those thoughts as being significant. So while that person who had that thought, like, what if I just tickle that guy in Walgreens, they can kind of like, what the hell, like, whatever, like, and move on and get back to it. Like, just, okay, observe it and move on. Just like any other thought. Someone with OCD might look at that thought and be like, oh my gosh, what does that mean about me? I just had that. That's really creepy. Like, what does that mean about me that I just had that thought? Do I actually want to do that? Like, what would happen if I did that in public? Like, oh, that's just so weird. Like, why would I? And then you can imagine that person will get really anxious, right? They're going to invest. They're investing in that thought. And then they might be like, whoa, got to make sure my hands are down here. I don't want to, I don't want to do that. Like, that's weird. And then maybe they like, they like are weird go, standing in lines. The next time they go to stand in the line, they're a little bit further away, right? And it just, it snowballs. It snowballs and it snowballs and it snowballs. The first intrusive thought I ever had and that I acted on with my son, I was changing him. He was a newborn and I was putting socks on him. I was a, I, I was just changing him like I had done several times before and I had the intrusive thought, like, what if you snap his ankle? And I was like, whoa. Like that could happen. He's so delicate. Oh my gosh. Like, does that, did I want to have that thought? Like, am I that frustrated that I wanted to do that? No, like that's weird. And I immediately going against everything that I knew, I gave that sock to my husband and I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. And it was a matter of weeks before I was not changing him at all. Any any article of clothing. I was not able to do baths by myself with him. I was not able to tolerate being alone with my son for as long as my husband needed to go take a shower. Like my husband would say that he needed to go take a shower and my my heart would sink. 15 minutes I had to be alone with my son. It was, it, it gets intense and it's not about lining up the per, the cookies perfectly in the cookie jar. It's just not. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that sounds so, so, so intense. And then what I'm hearing is that, so you have the thought and then when it becomes problematic or when those intrusive thoughts become problematic is when they affect your behavior, right? Exactly. When you, when you wouldn't let, when you wouldn't be alone with your son or when you were scared to change his diaper. So not only are you having these really, really scary intrusive thoughts about harming the, probably the thing you love the most in the world, but then you're also having your behavior be dictated 
agitated by it. Like, yeah, OCD is a lot more than just the cookies in the cookie jar. Yeah. And, and what fe- it feels so good to just like get rid of that anxiety, right? Like what a rush, like, oh my gosh, it's like, you just had this near miss, right? It, it's near, it's called near miss relief. Like where, oh, like I almost got hit by that car, almost got chased down by that bear and I missed it. Right. Like it's that same rush of relief. But unfortunately when people do that, when they wash their hands, when they feel dirty or when they ask for reassurance about a medical condition that they're unsure about and they get that reassurance, like, it feels good in that moment, but what people don't realize is that that relief works via negative reinforcement. So what that does is it alleviates an unpleasant sensation, that compulsion we call it, or that like safety behavior, um, it re- it makes you feel good. It alleviates discomfort. And so your brain's just gonna wanna do that again. Your brain is gonna say, oh, okay, it felt really good to not do those, to not do those socks. Let's make sure that Jenna doesn't do it again next time. In fact, let's make sure that she doesn't do pants either because those are also kind of scary, right? So our brains are always trying to protect us. Our brains have the good intentions, but they just get a little bit, a little bit like thanks, but no thanks brain. Thanks, but no thanks. So yeah, it can get really, really intense. (laughs) I can definitely relate to that. Like one of my first intrusive thoughts that I really probably not my first one ever, I'm sure, because it goes back into, you know, like grade school, middle school, but the first one that really significantly that I can remember impacting my life was in college for some reason. Like I just started to get really, really afraid of driving. And I was like, what if I'm driving on the highway going fast? And what if I just go off the road? What if I just, you know, take my steering wheel and just turn it 90 degrees? Or what if I hit somebody that else? That is so common. Yeah, I didn't drive on the highway for like two years. Like I took back roads everywhere. People who are listening can't see, but before Ashley even said that, I like did the little steering wheel because I knew, I knew, like I knew that that was what she was going to say because it's so common. It's so common. And again, it's not the thought. People have that thought. And that's actually one of the common thoughts. Like there's actually a document we pulled people on like the kinds of thoughts that they have. And one of the most common ones is that like, what if I just like drove off this bridge? What if I just like, like lost control of my impulses. And I just like did that. That's one of the more common ones. But what so many people are able to do is like, oh, that's weird. And they just keep driving. Just keep going. Yeah. What other people do, right. Is they, Like, oh my gosh, that would be awful. I can't let that happen. And they don't drive for two years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So maybe um, help our listeners understand because as a therapist, I also know that anxiety can also impact your behavior, right? Like if you're anxious about a social event, you're like, okay, I'm not going, right? And so can you talk about the difference between anxiety and OCD when they're both like thought-based and they both impact our behavior? This is one of my favorite topics and so much so that like we made it into like at no city, we made it into a webinar that we did like over several days. Cause I just couldn't stop talking about it. I made it into a podcast episode. This always ruffles some feathers because it's just very non-conventional and it's not the way that the DSM says it, but functionally to me, they're no different. Everything that I'm saying about OCD and all these examples, it would work the same way to me about social anxiety, right? Like, Sure. Yeah. Starting a new school. That's a little bit anxiety provoking for everyone. You have thoughts like, what if they don't like me? That to me is functionally no different from what if I just like lost control of my impulses and steered off this bridge. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
that can go one of two ways, right? Like you can either like allow that thought to come and go, or you can continue to invest in that thought, you know, by engaging with it and, you know, ruminating about it, doing a compulsion about it. Um, and whether you avoid driving or whether you avoid social interaction, right? Your avoidance of those things works as a safety behavior. It literally, it feels good in that moment. It provides you that temporary relief, but it fuels the cycle. So by, if you have social anxiety and you like are really anxious about a social event, so you stay home, what similarly to not driving, right? Like, oh, good thing I didn't drive today. Thank goodness I didn't drive because otherwise I could have gotten myself killed. And maybe you're not, maybe in that situation, it's not as conscientious as that. Like maybe you're not aware of that thought process, but that's the message that your brain gets when you don't drive, right? It's like, well, good thing you didn't drive because otherwise something bad would have happened. It's like, well, maybe something bad would have happened. Maybe it wouldn't have, but certainly by avoiding, you're only reinforcing the most awful thing happening. And so you're going to be even more afraid the next time to drive, right? Same thing with social situations. If you're invited to a party, but you're socially anxious, but all these uncertainties and you don't go, it's going to feel really good to not go. But are you going to be more afraid or less afraid of the next social interaction? You're going to be more afraid because of that avoidance. It, it, to me, functionally, they're, they're no different. So I like to encompass them all together, like anxiety, doubt, worry, fear. All those things to me are synonymous. Um, a lot of times people would argue, well, in generalized anxiety disorder, there are no covert, uh, there are no compulsions. Well, what about someone who's has generalized anxiety disorder about the state of the world or like just bad things happening? What if they don't watch the news? They avoid watching the news. They don't like engage in these top topics because of anxiety with their family and their loved ones, right? What if someone's fearful about finances and they're avoiding opening their mail because they don't want to face that next bill, right? Like it's the same thing. Um, so I do, I would argue that there are compulsions or safety behaviors, call them whatever you want, tomato, tomato, uh, in generalized anxiety disorder. So I don't take that argument. Um, I think a while ago, obsessive compulsive disorder was thought to be like these out of this world content like um and that certainly happens like i've worked with plenty of people who feel like i have to walk through this door 18 times otherwise my mom's gonna die like they they realize that that's not realistically connected but it still feels very real um or like i have to count i have to say the abcs three times while i wash my hands otherwise i won't get this job like i think for a while ocd was considered to be that like bizarre but it's just not anymore, right? Like it's not. What about sexual orientation OCD? What about relationship OCD? What about contamination OCD in light of COVID, right? Like you can have OCD and not necessarily have these like bizarre out of this world type of content anymore, right? Like we're just learning more about it. Um, so I don't like that argument either. Um, I, if you were to ask me, I, the best analogy that I can come up with is that I feel like generalized anxiety disorder is kind of like the rolling thunder. Like it's kind of always there in the background. And I feel like that's what I always had as a kid. It's just like this rolling thunder. It's not like this impending, like this urgent sense of doom. It's just like always kind of there and nagging in the background and looming, I guess. Whereas obsessive compulsive disorder feels like a clap of thunder. Like it is just very sudden and out of nowhere and it scares the crap out of you. Um, 
I don't know that they're all that different. I don't know that they're all that different of processes. Um, so that to me is kind of what kind of feels like it resonates. Um, but functionally, no, I don't think that there's any functional difference between a worry and anxiety and an obsession in OCD. Mm -hmm. That was a really awesome explanation. I'll definitely have to check out that episode you mentioned that you have on this because I think it's such a fascinating um, topic, right? OCD in general and anxiety in general. And yeah, for someone who sees people not do things because of their anxiety, I'm like, okay, yeah, that would make sense that functionally they're not any different if they're both causing the same, um, you to do the same thing or to not do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I think where we've gone, well, and I don't want to say that we've gone wrong. I mean, this is the reality of having learned so much more over like the past 10 or 12 years that I've been doing this, at least we learn more. And in 10 years, we'll learn even more. Um, but, you know, we are told as therapists, like when it comes to anxiety and OCD to do cognitive behavioral therapy. And CBT is obviously, it's such an umbrella term, right? There's like not very specific, like ERP is a specific intervention under CBT, so is ACT and so is DBT. Um, but I think the one thing that other therapists do with anxiety, and I used to do it too, until I made these connections. Um, I think a lot of times when we're working with people who have anxiety or generalized anxiety disorder or social anxiety or phobias or stuff like that, we tend to engage in a lot more of the cognitive work, like cognitive restructuring and challenging thoughts with rationale. With obsessive compulsive disorder, we don't do that. Like we, that's a big no-no in the work that we do. It is, we know that OCD is ridiculous. Like it's assumed that OCD is just ridiculous and that you can't argue. Like you can't argue with OCD with logic because it just won't work. I don't know that it works for anxiety either. Like, I don't, I don't know. I, I've come to this, this conclusion. This is my thought. I feel like OCD and anxiety, whether it's generalized anxiety disorder, phobias, et cetera, they live in our minds, right? Like they live in our imaginations. We're anxious about these imagined scenarios. Um, and as a result, anything is possible. Anything is impossible. Anything is possible in our imagination. Anything is possible in the future. As soon as we step into the future, it's unknown, right? Um, and I think the wild thing is, like, the epiphany that I came to is that's why logic doesn't work with anxiety. That's why logic doesn't work with OCD. That's why logic doesn't work when it comes to social anxiety. You can say, like, you're, but you're, everyone loves you. Like, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Just go hang out with them. Just go to the party. Because it lives in our minds. And we will always come up with one more imagined scenario that trumps logic. But I, but what if they don't like me? What if they don't like me? What if they're just saying that? Or what if something bad happens tonight of all nights, right? Um, so I think with that said, like, we're always, we can fight OCD and anxiety with logic all day. We're never going to win because it, we're always going to come up with like one more what if or one more doubt. And so that's where exposure and response prevention comes in, right? Which is about experience. It's about Okay, feel the way that you feel, accept the fact that something bad could happen. We're not going to sit here and, and analyze it. We're going to go for it. We're going to go and, and put yourself gradually more and more outside of your comfort zone, just a little bit, make it challenging, but manageable. And we're going to see what happens. 
And then you evaluate afterwards, right? Like you go to that party and you evaluate. Like your feared consequence was that you were going to get judged and laughed at. And you learn after the party, if it goes well, then, huh, look at that. Like your fear didn't happen. Um, And even if it did happen, we need people to learn that they can tolerate that experience. Like, oh, that really sucks. That sucks. It's okay to feel like like rejected, right? Like that, that, that's valid. Mm -hmm. And we, and we teach them to learn how to cope with that too. So ERP is all about learning, not through rationale, because that doesn't work, but learning through experience that your fears aren't as probable to happen as you think, that they're not as catastrophic if they happen. And that even if they do happen, you can handle it. So that's what I think this is all about. I literally love everything you're saying. And I think when you posted the reel of you can't um, logic your way out of OCD, that's when I was like, okay, I need to get Jenna on the podcast. And that's, I think, when I messaged you because I completely agree. Because people always say to me, like, I know that it's um, – they're like, I know it's not logical for me to feel or to think these things, but I still do, right? And so that's why I don't think logic works because it's like logically, like I'm claustrophobic. So like logically when I'm in the elevator, I know that most likely I'm not going to die, right? I'm going to be okay, but I still feel it. But it's not but. Yeah, (laughs) right. It's the but, exactly. It's why I don't think logic works for anything, right? Like if I try to tell my clients who have, I'm a trauma therapist, right? So I'm like, oh, let's just think your way through feeling and healing from your trauma. Like that's not going to do anything. So yeah, I, I love everything you said. And I'm so glad that you're out there sharing that message because so many people try to intellectualize what they've been through or how they're feeling or what they're experiencing. And it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work and it makes it, it makes the cycle keep going, right? Like if we try to logic our way out of things. I have, I have chills. I'm like clearly very excited about this topic. So, I mean, but people can learn, right? So I I think so many people now that we're like getting that message out there of like, Hey, cognitive restructuring and just talking about your issues doesn't actually work. I think they're on board now a little bit more. And so it's now like, okay, well then, then what, like, then what am I supposed to do? And my answer to that is experience. Your brain needs to learn through experience, not through logic. Your brain learned all of this fear through experience, whether that was imagined experience or, a um, like a vicarious experience. Like you saw or heard someone else going through something, your brain learned through experience. We have to unlearn through experience. And I always encourage people, like whether it's claustrophobia or driving or intrusive thoughts or whatever it is, right? Like imagine that you got bit by a golden retriever. Like not that you would ever really get bit by a golden retriever. They're so cute. But um, let's imagine that you got bit but by a golden retriever. But that's too logical for you to say. Right. Logic doesn't, <laughs> doesn't it's help. A really, it's a really mean golden retriever. Let's imagine that you got bit by a golden retriever. You would immediately, you would immediately be scared of golden retrievers, but it wouldn't just be golden retrievers. Fear generalizes to help us and good thing because it's not just this one busy road that I need to be careful on. It's, it's actually all roads. I need to look twice, right? So it's a good thing that our brains does do this. It's just, it does it too much too often. Um, so we wouldn't just be 
fearful of that one golden retriever. We would be fearful of all golden retrievers. We would also be fearful of any other like bigger dog that's fluffy and light haired, right? And as we continue to avoid those other dogs, maybe we also start to get avoidance of you know, pit bulls, maybe we start to get avoidance of labs or um, German shepherd, like all dogs, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen. It, it doesn't take long for that to happen. To undo that, it takes way longer. So like in order to generate a fear, it doesn't take much at all. It takes one bite and suddenly it's like, I'm, I'm terrified of dogs, all dogs. Mm -hmm. Now to get over a fear, you have to do exposures with a golden retriever, multiple golden retrievers. You have to do exposures with various types of dogs. You have to do exposures listening to dogs and being around dogs and going to dog parks and holding on to dogs and walking. Like, it takes a lot of work to get out of fear. It, our brains are actively working to err on the side of caution. And so like, just for people to know, to be patient with themselves, it doesn't mean if it's taking a long time, it doesn't mean that it's not working. It just means that your brain is actively fighting against you to keep you alive. It, it just doesn't need to work as hard as it's working. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I know you briefly mentioned like the different kind of themes or subtypes of OCD, like relationship OCD or sexual orientation. Could you expand on that a little bit? Because I think another misconception with OCD is people think it's just like OCD. That's it. They don't realize that there could be these different, you know, subsets and mm -hmm. you could just be affected by one, not all of them. Yeah, sure. It could go a million different ways. And so I like to describe OCD as the doubt disorder. So, and that's actually kind of what it's referenced as in other countries. It's called the doubt disorder because it's truly a disorder of doubt. It's a disorder of not being able to tolerate uncertainty, which isn't all that different from any other type of anxiety, right? Um, so it's the disorder of doubt. And so what we know, humans, we sit with doubt all the time all the time. You took a chance on me coming on this podcast. I could have been a complete sham and a total waste of time, but you took that chance. Every time we get in our cars, we take that chance that we could die in a car accident, but we take that chance. We roll the dice. So we are machines. Like we operate off of just rolling dice and making calculated decisions based on risk and reward all the time. And we're not aware of it where we're not willing to accept uncertainty and where we need to know 100%, that's where we get obsessive and compulsive and anxious. I was not willing to accept that I could hurt my son. Like I needed to know 100%. I needed to know 100% that like I wouldn't hurt him and that like I would not be in that situation where like I hurt him and I like, what do I do now? What do I do? What do I do now? I don't know what to do. Um, and so much so that I was like, well, the only way to ensure that that doesn't happen is to just not be alone with them. Right. The only way to ensure that you don't just lose control of your impulses and drive off the road is to not drive. Um, so OCD comes up wherever you aren't willing to accept uncertainty. That tends to be like Emily referenced, right? Like the most valuable thing to me, it tends to be where you value a lot. Um, it tends to be where you might have a lot of responsibility. It tends to be the things that you value most, your work, you really value school and like your academic pursuits. It's going to end up there. Um, otherwise, it wouldn't be a problem, right? Um, 
so we do see these common more like these more common kind of subtypes or uh, more conventional manifestations and we call them the subtypes there are tons there's no way to give you an exhaustive list and, and just because someone doesn't resonate with one of the subtypes doesn't mean that they don't have ocd right we can have intrusive thoughts about anything i could go after all of the subtypes i've ever worked with and i would still forget one i would still miss something right because it, it's it's not relationship ocd probably wasn't thought of 10 years ago it doesn't mean that they weren't struggling with it didn't talk about it or didn't know enough about it um so but we do have contamination ocd right so that's kind of the big one fears of being contaminated or contaminating someone else not just with germs could be with chemicals could be with uh bodily fluids could be with anything um harm intrusive thoughts that you know and these are thoughts that people do not want to have these are thoughts that like they're not curious about they're not fantasizing about them they don't want to have these thoughts these, these are ego dystonic thoughts that they do not want to have like ashley the the thought that you had about the driving, it wasn't like, oh my gosh, yeah, I just want to end it. Like, this isn't not, this yeah. is, I, I, that sounds good. Like, I, I wonder how good that would feel. It's like, oh, uh-uh, no, 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 no. I don't know where that came from. I'm out, I'm out of here. Um, so mm -hmm. harm intrusive thoughts, that could be thoughts, ideas, images, impulses, commands, um, feelings, intrusive experiences about harming yourself, harming someone else, um, either on purpose or an accident could be sexual in nature. So a lot of times people have what we call POCD, pedophilic OCD. I worked with a gentleman who was 25 years old and he lived by himself. He wasn't able to work, wasn't able to go to school. And all year round, 24 seven, he wore sunglasses, even in the winter at night to go take out his trash because he was terrified of uh, having eye contact with a, with a child. Because he thought if he did, oh my gosh, what if I like actually was attracted to them? Oh my gosh, what would that mean? Oh my gosh, what would that mean? He was terrified. He would not drive by a, a, a park. He would not drive by any, because he was terrified of like, what if I actually liked it? What if I actually liked it? Um, and he couldn't be around his nieces and nephews. It was just terrible. It was awful. Um, and so there are lots of other ones, hit and run OCD, fearfulness that you might've like hit someone with your car. I've worked with so many people who falsely, uh, they were so unable to accept the uncertainty, like that the police would come and get them or that like they killed someone who's like suffering in the woods that they called the police on themselves. Like they wanted to, like they would rather call themselves in for doing a crime they did not commit because like they just could not handle that anxiety of like having done something and like being this immoral person walking around the world. Um, we, relationship OCD, uh, obsessions and compulsions around any type of relationship. We most conventionally see it with romantic partners, but it can be with your child. It can be with your friends. It can be with pets. It can be with anything, any relationship, sexual orientation, OCD, needing to know 100%. Am I actually 100% sure about my sexual orientation? I, I, I thought that girl was pretty, but I have a, a, a fiance that I'm going to marry and I love him. What does that mean that I thought that girl was pretty? Am I actually straight? Like I thought it, it, there's so many, there's so many moral scrupulosity, OCD obsessions about good or bad. Am I going to go religious scrupulosity? Am I going to go to heaven or hell? It can, it, it, I mean, it, I could just go on and on and on, <laughs> but it's the doubt disorder. 
It's the doubt disorder and it attaches and latches on to anything, especially what it is that you value. Yes. That's so fascinating because I didn't know that, you know, there was endless different types of subsets. I thought it was kind of like the main ones, like the contamination or relationships, kind of like the typical, you know, the ones that are maybe a little bit more talked about, like in the mainstream, Mm -hmm. I guess you could say. So I'm really glad we're bringing you know, education to this and letting more people know. And I definitely relate to like the hit and run one. There's been times where I thought for sure I hit somebody like a biker on the side of the road where I'll go back and circle like five times and make sure they're still there. Mm -hmm. Make sure I didn't actually hit them, like check my car. And it is like so debilitating to think that you could have hit somebody. I would say that like that, it's the same monster, just two different masks. Like that doubt and like that need to know 100% like that that's functionally not all that different from what it is that you struggled with with the driving right like it's the right. same beat it's just a different mask it's like the OC, it just wants your attention it's going to get it's a it's a doubt disorder that just wants your attention so now that you're driving it's like well i'm going to make her worry about this it's just a, right. it's a it's a jerk <laughs> mm-hmm. yes mm-hmm. it's like having having a bully inside your head at all times telling you that you're doing something totally. wrong and make sure that you do this right. And so, yeah, no, like Ashley said, it sounds so debilitating. Um, and I think too, what we are making me think of with all these different subtypes is what kind of like we were saying before is that I wonder how many people have these have OCD and don't know it because they're not like Ashley was saying, I wasn't aware that that was a subtitle. And and I have a client right now dealing with sexual orientation, OCD, and she feels crazy. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, if we could talk, we could talk more about it. Maybe people wouldn't feel so crazy because yes, are the thoughts crazy? Sure. But is the person crazy? No. Right. And that's another one. That's another one. Right. Like I have worked with so many people who that is their main theme that they're going to go crazy that they are actually psychotic and that they are going to develop psychosis and just, I mean, lose control and live in a, like a lockdown facility for the rest of their life, that they have no hope left, that they actually don't have OCD and that they are crazy. Um, So that's probably another one, right? But where does that start, right? Like now that that flower of like that subtype is blooming, I, I, I have to ask, like, where did that start? It started from people speaking up. It started from people speaking up and then being like, oh my God, me too. Oh my God, you too? That's not just me. Like, that's crazy. So we don't even know what else is out there. And it's not even worthwhile, I think, to put it into a list. We just need to accept the fact that we have crazy freaking thoughts and it's not the thoughts that are the problem. It's the, like, the meaning and the interpretation that we take of them and whether we let it dictate our lives. But like, it starts with people being able to say and to voice their thoughts. And that's scary to do. It's scary to do. But as that, as one person comes up, another person comes up and then another person comes up. And then I think that like starts to snowball and eventually it's a subtype. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. It is. And one of the reasons Ashley and I started this podcast is to talk more openly about mental health and to share experiences because yeah, when we realize that, oh, we're not alone in these things, it, it's so validating, right? To realize we're mm-hmm. not alone in these things. And um, something going back to something you were saying earlier is I, I do a lot of acceptance and commitment work and I always tell people, 
acceptance is not a feeling. You're not just going to wake up one day and accept that, okay, I'm, I'm not scared of the future anymore. I'm not scared of uncertainty. No, it's a behavior, right? Acceptance yeah. is a behavior because you have to do things that go against the thoughts um, that they're telling you. Because if you do the things that the thoughts are telling you to do, like wash your hands or don't change your baby's diaper, do those types of things, it's going to get worse, right? And so it's not right. something that we can just think our way, but going back to thinking, right? Just, okay, I accept it now. It's fine. It's all good. It's like, no, it's a behavior. It's not going to just come overnight. It's a behavior. Yeah. And that's probably one of the big pitfalls that people land in is that they want to feel better before these rituals go away. They want to feel better before these thoughts go away. And it's like, I wish, but it just doesn't work that way. Like you need to put in the work. You need to give your brain new information via new challenging experiences that are going to be hard and anxiety provoking. And you need to keep doing it and you need to keep doing it and do it some more and do it some more and do it some more and do it some more. To this day, I am still, it's four and a half years later and I still do not, I don't know when my husband is coming home from work. I'm, it was one of my exposures at some point to not ask him because it used to be repetitive for me. When are you coming home? How far away are you? And I used to just watch the clock. Like when I see coming home, I have like three minutes left. Like I just need to make it to three minutes. And it was an exposure for me at one point to just not ask him that. And I, to this day, four and a half years later, I have no idea when my husband's coming home. You have to put in the work. You have to, commit to the behaviors. You have to do this, the scary, hard things. And you have to muster up that commitment, that willingness, that courage, doing scary things because they're scary. Like not waiting to feel courageous. You have to do the scary thing because it's scary and then you'll gain confidence after that. But yeah, you're definitely not gonna feel better before X, Y, and Z happens. Like you need to do X, Y, and Z and then you will feel better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, so many people think, well, I'll, once I get it, I'll, once I feel better, I'll do those things. And it's like, well, no, it's sort of like, and let me know what your thoughts on this. Cause I say a lot of times, you know, the phrase like actions speak louder than words, actions speak louder than our thoughts, right? Like we have to take the action piece because that's, what's going to help the neuroplasticity, right? To rewire your brain and form those new connections is the action. So I always tell my clients, actions speak louder than our words and our thoughts, right? Like if we're having these thoughts and these feelings, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to wait till I feel better, but we don't take any action. Well, that's, that's only like doing like 10% of the work, right? Like 90% of the work comes from taking action. 100%. And I wish it was easier. I wish there was a way, but there's a lot of goodness that comes from doing the work, right? Like I could go on and on forever, but like you're building your confidence, you're building your self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is your belief in your ability to do hard things. If we could just like give a pill to someone and like have this all be better, like I feel like we'd be missing a lot of the point. The point is doing hard things, right? Like it's good to do hard things. And that's why I made my podcast the, the name of that it is. I remember I worked with someone who she was really struggling in her recovery and I couldn't get her to, to really commit to exposures. I couldn't get her to choose brilliant. She was super cool, but she did not want to do exposures no matter how watered down or how collaborative we made it. And she was like, I just don't understand why I would do something that's hard if I had the choice to do it an easier way. And I was like, I have a million things to say, but I also have nothing to say. Like, (laughs) like it's good to do hard things. 
it, it builds your freaking character. Like, this is what life is about. Like, you can't build muscle in the gym unless you strain yourself, right? And it's the same way with all of the stuff that we're talking about now. So I really don't think that people would get what they needed to out of it if we just, like, eliminated their intrusive thoughts. Like, it's about, like, adding to your cup and making good repetitive choices that are in favor of your values and learning that you can do difficult things. That's, that's, Mm -hmm. it's beautiful to learn that and to build that self-confidence and to attribute the fact that like I got through that difficult situation because I got through it, not because of a ritual, not because of a, of a cure, right? Uh It's all, it's all a difficult process, but it's worth it for sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it's always worth it, right? To it's hard work when you're in it, um, but it's worth it. And I, we actually we talked about that on the podcast. Like I wouldn't go back and do my eating disorder treatment all over again, like the day to day. But was it so worth it? Absolutely, right? Like it's so worth it to go and heal yourself and help yourself and know that you can do it because what your client was saying about like, well, why would I do that? That's the safety behaviors, right? Like doing something that's easier, even though not, you know, not saying it's easy, right? But in nature, but you do that thing that helps you feel good in that moment, but in the long run just reinforces that cycle. So I feel like that's something I'm saying to my clients too, like short-term discomfort for long-term progress, right? Or the other way around, like if you're just going to get that short-term comfort, then it's going to repeat the cycle, right? So it's mm-hmm. in the, it's about the long game, I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that, I mean, I go, I see a therapist, like I love therapy and she often will ask me like, how did you get through that? Like, how did you get through that? And I'm like, I, I feel like I don't even function like as myself right now. I feel like I'm always like behaving now for Jenna tomorrow, like Jenna five years from now, Jenna 10 years from now, like almost to a fault, probably like I'm not able to be as present. Um, but I'm like, I'm, you have to do that in this work that we're talking about. You have to do it the hard thing now for your future self. You have to do the hard work now so that tomorrow isn't as bad. Like I, and I, that's what was very clear to me, even from a super early age, like I don't want to be anxious tomorrow when I have to come back to school. Cause I know I have to come back to school. So I'm just going to get it over with now. Like we have to, we have to do the hard thing now. And, and it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse. So we have a choice. It's our game to win is what I always say. You know, fear can't really thrive unless we participate, unless we let it. And so if we can do that hard thing now, it's going to be hard, but it's only going to be harder tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And then to be on the other side of that fear, once you kind of do the work and feel like you can conquer it and be like, okay, I did that thing and I survived and I'm okay. And I made it. It's just, I don't know. It's completely life-changing to know that like, you know, you can get through that and then, you know, okay, if it happens again in a day, a week or a month, whatever it is, like, I'm going to be okay. And it's almost like giving that self-reassurance. It's, uh, it's empowering and it makes you feel like you're unstoppable. Like mm-hmm. I, we always used to say that we, our job as OCD and anxiety therapists, like we work to make people f- realize that they're like 10 feet tall and bulletproof. Like that's a really cool feeling, um, mm-hmm. to kind of get people from where they're feeling really weak and really intimidated and really vulnerable to the OCD to where like they have they're 10 feet tall and bulletproof. Like I got this, I got this, like it's going to be challenging and I can handle it. Um, yeah, that's what ERP is all about. Mm-hmm. And 
I like what you said, or Ashley, you said like the self-assurance, but it's actual self-assurance, unlike the safety behaviors that just reinforce the cycle, but it's actual self-assurance that, okay, I can do this. Like I can survive without knowing what time my husband's coming home. I can do that. And I can do it uh-huh. the next day too, right? The actual self-assurance that you get from doing the work. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the experience, right? Like it's experience that I have given my brain. I have four and a half years, well, probably three and a half years now of experience of not asking my husband when he's coming home and being alone with my son and being able to do this, being able to do that. And I survived and my son has survived. That's not to say that like something horrible won't happen because uncertainty, right? Like I obviously hope not, but you know, nothing is a hundred percent, but it's chances that I'm willing to take the same way that when I go to pick up my son from school and I use my car, I take that chance. I am willing to take the chance of getting in a car accident in my car because that agency being able to do things that I need to do, be able, being able to have independence to drive my car, that's important enough to me to be able to take that risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about anxiety and OCD. This is such a fascinating, enlightening, and interesting conversation. Um, and I feel like we just scratched the surface too. I know. <laughs> Every time that I go on a podcast, I, I get like so revved up and I get so into it and I get sweaty and I'm like really into it. And everyone does that. Like, I feel like I just scratched the surface. So I'll come back. I'll just come back. Yes. We would love that. <laughs> Please do, because I feel like we could talk about this for days because it's such a misunderstood, like I was saying in the beginning, such a misunderstood topic. Um, And we, I mean, I'm thinking therapists get literally no education around OCD in grad school and in any other type of um, environment. Like you have to do it on your own. And I'm, you know, I'm actually taking an ERP course right now because I want to know more about it, right? Because it's so fascinating and I want to know how to help people when it's so common to experience. And so like Ashley was saying, like, it's so amazing that you have a social media platform and a podcast to be talking about these sort of things so that people can feel less crazy and they can get the help that they need and deserve. Yeah, hopefully. Um, and yeah, like you mentioned acceptance and commitment therapy. I think, I mean, we infuse a lot of that into what we do with exposure and response prevention. I don't think that it's all that different, right? Like we right. talk about values, we talk about accepting uncomfortable emotions. We often will give them like diffusion techniques and teaching them to be the observer of their thoughts. So I could go on and on about that too. Um, And more, I mean, more importantly, right? Like these are helpful strategies for OCD and anxiety, but for people in general, it is good for people to be able to diffuse from thoughts. It is good for people to be able to accept uncomfortable emotions. It is good for people to witness their values and make calculated decisions and efforts towards those values. Like this is not just about therapy for people who have mental health conditions. Like this is yeah. what we should all have all been taught instead of like, what is a mitochondria? <laughs> like we should have been taught how to do taxes and about all of these emotion oh, no. regulation skills. Don't get Ashley started about the oh uh, education system in America. Cause you're right. <laughs> right. These are very applicable things to everyday life and accepting that the unknown is neutral, right? Not good or bad. I feel like it's so powerful and can be so helpful with, I mean, look at the last three years, right? In the world, like pretty freaking unknown, right? So if we can understand that it's neutral and it's not good or bad and we can sit with uncertainty and sit with discomfort. Yeah, it can be for people of all walks of life, whether it's mental health disorders or not. 
every it's good for everyone to understand these things. Yeah, absolutely. I think of like job interviews. There's so much that's unknown. I mean, if you are, unless you are living a world in a bubble and completely inside of your comfort zone, there's, there's uncertainty and there's potential for doubt and there's anxiety. Right. And mm-hmm. yeah, like this is, I feel really strongly that this is not just for people who have mental health conditions. Like you don't only need these skills and can benefit from them only when you have a diagnosable condition. Like these are things that everyone can benefit from. Mm-hmm. 100%. Well, thank you so much. We are so excited for this episode to go live so we can share it with everyone and continue the conversation around anxiety and OCD and sitting with uncomfortability. Awesome. I'm super happy to have been here. Thank you guys for everything that you do. Yes. Thank you so much, Jen. I love this conversation. Well, that concludes today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We hope that this episode was enlightening or educational or if it resonated in any way, as always, please reach out to a professional if you know you have any more questions or if you were like, shoot, I think I might have OCD, please reach out to somebody and um, get the help that is out there because like we said in the episode OCD is very treatable and there's very effective treatments to navigating it and if you like today's episode and you're following along the podcast please leave us a review and give us a rating it really helps us helps out the show and um, yeah again thanks for tuning in love you Ash love you Em